Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm KQED Politics Editor Scott Schaefer, in for Alexis Madrigal. The ethics of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas are under intense scrutiny after a ProPublica investigation found that Thomas failed for decades to disclose lavish gifts from a wealthy conservative donor. Unlike lower courts and virtually every other branch of government, the Supreme Court has no binding code of ethics or rules for transparency. And despite years of allegations about conflicts of interest, the judges almost never recuse themselves from cases, and they don't have to. This hour on Forum, the power of the Supreme Court and calls to rein it in. That's coming up next, after this news. Good morning and welcome to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer in today for Alexis Madrigal. And this hour, we're delving into a topic that has put the U.S. Supreme Court under an extremely harsh spotlight. Two weeks ago, ProPublica reported that for more than 20 years, Justice Clarence Thomas has been accepting lavish gifts from a conservative Texas billionaire named Harlan Crow. And since then, there have been other revelations about their financial relationship. We're talking flights on private planes, island hopping in Indonesia on a luxury yacht, weekends in the Adirondacks and at the exclusive Bohemian Club in the Redwoods of Sonoma County. Now, Justice Thomas reported none of this on disclosure forms. He said he didn't think he had to. And that's the rub. Codes of ethics that apply to every other level of federal courts and public officials did not apply to the Supreme Court. But a lot of people think changing that is long overdue. And joining us to discuss the ethics crisis at the Supreme Court is Josh Kaplan, He is a reporter with ProPublica, part of the investigative team that broke that story about Justice Thomas. Uh, Josh Kaplan, welcome to Forum. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, let me just begin, just bring everybody up to speed here. I think uh, many people, of course, have heard about this, but describe the relationship between these two men and and Thomas's wife, Ginny. How do do they know each other and, and what's the relationship like? Yeah, so um, Thomas and Harlan Crow, who is a 
billionaire real estate magnate and major Republican donor. Um, they met uh, only after um, Thomas ascended to the Supreme Court. And Crow actually recently in an interview uh, described how they first met as uh, Thomas was heading to Texas for a think tank uh, speaking engagement and Crow offered him use of his private jet and they bonded on the plane. Um, and what we found was that um, Thomas has been accepting um, lavish luxury travel from Crow virtually every year for over 20 years, um, all in secret. Um, so we found private jet flights all around the world, uh, international cruises on a super yacht, um, regular stays at a private uh, invitation-only luxury resort in the Adirondacks. Um, and, um, you know, for instance, one recent example in 2019, uh, Thomas, uh, flew to Indonesia on Crow's private jet and then spent nine days, um, island hopping on his super yacht. Mm. Uh, and we were told that, you know, Thomas had, uh, chartered the plane and the yacht himself, it, the cost easily could have exceeded $500,000. Yeah. Well, it's it's easy to understand what's in it for Clarence Thomas. I mean, he's getting these great vacations uh, and gifts and other things. But what's in it for Crow, do you think? I mean, I think that's, uh, to some extent, an open question, uh, to, in a large extent. I mean, Crow has not personally had a case before the court, and um, he's told us he's never discussed a pending case with Thomas. But, you know, they've spent a lot of time together over the years, and uh, what they've talked about and what that relationship has looked like from the uh, inside is still, you know, largely a black box. Um, Crow has extensive uh, financial and ideological interests. Um, he's given many millions of dollars to political causes, and he's given a lot of money to, you know, several organizations that are dedicated to pushing the judiciary to the right. Uh, Can you give an Federalist example of that? Yeah, Federal Society. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the Federalist Society. I mean, he's also on the board of, of you know major think tanks that advance specific conservative legal theories, and whose scholars uh, occasionally file amicus briefs with the Supreme Court. Um, and so, this question of you know influence, whether it's direct or indirect, and uh, you know how exactly this has played out in uh, you know what influence this might have had on Thomas's views over the years, is you know a question we're still trying to understand. And Thomas, I understand, uh, declined to talk to you. Uh, what did Crow say? Yes. Yeah, so um, Crow, um, in response to our first story, uh, said that you know he and Thomas are uh, just dear friends. Um, that he, you know, he acknowledged that he extended hospitality to Thomas, but said that it was no different from what he's uh, extended to his many other dear friends. Hmm. Do we know who any of his other dear friends are? Um, you know, George Bush, um, uh, Charles a lot of people, Mer a lot of people in politics, yes, a lot, a lot of people in politics and a lot of people, um, uh, that are, you know, influential conservative scholars. Yeah. And, and uh, Thomas did not talk to you. Did, did you get any reaction from the court's communications people? Uh, so Thomas didn't, uh, the court and Thomas did not respond to detailed questions that we sent them in advance of either of our stories. Thomas did release a rare public statement um, after the day after we published our first story as there started to become outcry um, on Capitol Hill, um, in which he, you know, much like Tom, uh, much like Crow said that this is this is a friendship. Um, 
And there's, you know, he's joined them on what he described as a number of family trips over the years. Uh, and he also uh, said he defended his uh, failure to disclose these trips, um, essentially saying that he'd uh, talked to colleagues um, early in his tenure in the court and they'd advised him that these sort of trips don't have to be disclosed. Uh, we talked to you know, seven ethics law experts, uh, including uh, former ethics lawyers for the White House and for Congress who'd served in both Republican and Democratic uh, administrations. And they all told us that you know, thing, these these trips like private jet flights uh, clearly were required by the law uh, to be disclosed by Thomas. And that if Thomas is arguing otherwise, that he is um, you know, frankly, incorrect. Yeah. We're talking about ethics at the U.S. Supreme Court, or lack thereof, following a report from ProPublica that Justice Clarence Thomas did not disclose more than 20 years of lavish gifts from a Texas billionaire, Josh Kaplan, a reporter from that ProPublica team, investigative team, is uh, is with us. And let me bring in Emily Bazelon. She's a staff writer with the New York Times Magazine. She's also a Truman Capote Fellow for Creative Writing and Law and Law at Yale Law School, co-host of Slate's Political Gab Fest. Emily Bazelon, um, obviously, you've been uh, hearing a lot about this. What 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 is the buzz in legal circles uh, or in places where people talk and think about court ethics? Well, I mean, I think Josh's amazing reporting has started this big conversation about the way in which Justice Thomas seems to um, not apply the rules to himself. Um, you know, there are questions and we can get into them about the um, canon of judicial, judicial ethics, but there's also a law, the Ethics and Government Act, which was passed after Watergate, that appears to make it clear that Supreme Court justices are supposed to disclose travel and gifts like this. And Thomas did not do that. And so then the question becomes, you know, is, are there any consequences? Um, where would those consequences come from? And how do we think about the integrity of this particular justice in light of these revelations? And also, what does it mean for the Supreme Court's reputation? I think in legal circles, there's a lot of concern about that, that this kind of disclosure really breeds citizenism about the court. Hmm. And, and uh, do you have any sense, Josh, uh, that perhaps other justices have, you know, maybe not as extreme as this, but uh, other kinds of relationships with other wealthy donors? I mean, they often, as soon as the court wraps up its uh, session in June, they often jet off to these fancy places for discussions and, you know, all kinds of conferences. I, I don't know who pays for those things, but do you have any sense that this is just the tip of the iceberg or is this really by far the most egregious example? I think there, there are two answers to that question, really. Um, in terms of what's known, I mean, many of the justices uh, travel to teach at study abroad programs for law schools or to give lectures, you know, both within the U.S. and at places around the world and, you know, may well uh, enjoy themselves as they're teaching in Italy sponsored by um, whatever law school. Um and, uh, you know, there have been some revelations over the years about Justice Scalia, for instance, uh, would go on hunting trips, uh, often kind of tacked on to the end of a, a speeching engagement he was giving. And those, you know, created some controversy. Um, I mean, I think the, 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 the other answer, though, is that, you know, what we found about Thomas all happened in secret. These were not disclosed. And uh, frankly, it took a, a great deal of work to... Um, 
learn the facts here. Um, and so in terms of what the other justices are doing, the real answer is, you know, uh, we don't know and we're continuing to report um, mm-hmm. on the court as a whole. Yeah. And Emily, you mentioned the Ethics in Government Act, which was passed in the 70s after Watergate. So you're saying it's really clear that he, Justice Thomas, should have disclosed this, was required to disclose it because he says, oh, I asked my colleagues and you know some other people and they said, oh, I don't have to because it's, it's hospitality from a close friend. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a debate about whether and how that law applies, and I'm not a prosecutor bringing charges, obviously, but when you look at the text of the law, justices are supposed to disclose gifts of over $415. This obviously qualifies, and it's Justice Thomas has been quite vague about these consultations, um, so it's really hard to know exactly what authority he was relying on here for deciding that he was exempt. And has there been any reaction, uh, Josh, from the chief justice in terms of either responding to this latest, your, you know, your, your article uh, or uh, changes that uh, are coming in the future? No, uh, the chief justice has not said anything yet. Yeah. Um, a number of uh, lawmakers have been calling on him to uh, investigate this. But uh what, if anything, John Roberts plans to do is is uh, unclear. Yeah. And Emily, we're getting coming up to a break, but this is not the first case of Thomas apparently ignoring ethics guidelines, especially in cases where his wife, Ginny, who was active with the Tea Party, uh, has had a major interest in things that came before the court, right? Right. And I think that's the problem. There's a pattern here. There's a case um, of involving the January 6th investigation where Justice Thomas was the only vote refusing the request of investigators to look at texts from people like uh, Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff. And then when those texts were, in fact, disclosed, it turned out they included texts from his wife, Jenny Thomas. And that just looks like a clear conflict. Yeah. All right. We are coming up to a break. Josh Kaplan, thank you so much uh, for joining us and for your excellent reporting on this topic. And we look forward to more of it uh, in the coming weeks, I'm, I'm guessing. Thanks so much. Thank you. Emily's going to stick around and we're going to be joined by another guest shortly. We want to hear from you. What do you think of these ethical lapses at the Supreme Court? Should Justice Thomas resign or even face impeachment? What should Chief Justice Roberts do, or for that matter, Congress? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. Or you can reach us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Scott Schaefer here this hour for Alexis Madrigal. Much more to come on this topic. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
And welcome back to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer in this hour for Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about ethics, or lack thereof, at the U.S. Supreme Court. It's all following a report from ProPublica that Justice Clarence Thomas did not disclose more than 20 years of lavish gifts from a Texas billionaire. And uh, talking with us this hour, Emily Bazelon, staff writer with The New York Times Magazine. And joining us now is Scott Cummings, professor of legal ethics from the UCLA School of Law and also founding faculty director of the UCLA program on legal ethics and the profession. Uh, Professor Cummings, welcome to the program. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. And let me give out the phone number again. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Or if you prefer, you can send us a comment via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum or email too, forum at kqed.org. That works as well. Um, Scott Cummings, let me ask you, uh, before the break, uh, Emily was talking, raising some of the questions all of this reporting uh, raises, including the consequences for the court. I mean, this comes at a time when the court's um, reputation is really in tatters and has been going downhill, some would say, well, for decades, really. Uh, What do you see as the short and longer term impact if this isn't addressed in a meaningful way? I mean, I think Emily is correct that this has had a really devastating impact on the reputation of the court and, frankly, its fundamental legitimacy. And I think that uh, as these examples continue to roll out, uh, to the extent that they're not addressed, they will have uh, far-reaching consequences for the long-term legitimacy of the court. And I think that really is a frightening prospect for the democracy that we live in. What kind of consequences? Well, I think people are not going to trust that the court is a neutral arbiter, that the court is going to be able to actually uh, decide cases based on impartial uh, and neutral decision-making norms, and that the court, frankly, isn't bought and sold by people that have a lot of money and power and access. Emily, um, my understanding is that since uh, in the past year, there was a new uh, kind of rule ethics guideline that came into force that would now require Justice Thomas clearly to disclose all these gifts. Is that correct? And what impact might that have? And how did that come about? Yes, you're right about that. So I was talking earlier about a law. This is a rule that um, the justice that that has recently been made explicit that gifts are supposed to be disclosed. Doesn't mean that it wasn't supposed to be disclosed before, but now it's very clear. And you know, I think Thomas has said that he will begin disclosures now. Um, whether that addresses the issues that Scott was just talking about is, you know, a different question. It's one thing to say sort of after the horse is out of the barn, I'm going to abide by the rules and another to do so from the beginning. Um, And, you know, this couldn't come at a worse time in a lot of ways, at least for Chief Justice Roberts, because there's already a perception among Americans that the court is polarized along political lines. Um, It is diving into these hugely consequential questions about access to abortion and firearms at a time when there are Uh, There's a majority of Republican appointees who are very conservative, and then the Democratic appointees are on the liberal side of the spectrum. And so you have the court politicized, and then you have these questions about it being for sale. Yeah. And and Professor Cummings, um, I I alluded earlier to Ginny Thomas, the wife of Justice Thomas, who has been 
very active in conservative politics. She was uh, has been an active member with the Tea Party. She had extraordinary access to the White House and former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows during the Trump era, the uh, his, his administration. What problems does that create for the court? Is it more sort of the same the, as what we've been discussing here? I mean, I, th- I think it creates a couple of different problems for the court. I mean, uh, one of the things that we haven't talked about yet is that, uh, although Emily mentioned it, there has been a, a pattern in practice of non-disclosure. Uh, one big controversy that came out recently was that uh, Justice Thomas had failed to disclose nearly $700,000 in income of Jenny that she earned uh, while working for the Heritage uh, Foundation, uh, which is a conservative think tank that uh, has a lot of uh, uh, support for causes that go before the court. Um, so there, there's sort of there, there are other examples of uh, instances of non-disclosure that raise questions. But then there are, uh, you know, perceptions of impropriety, uh, appearances of impropriety that create questions, as Emily has already indicated, about whether or not uh, Justice Thomas uh, and the court in general can uh, uh, respond uh, neutrally to issues that come before the court, given Jenny Thomas's deep involvement in, in, in conservative politics uh, and her deep involvement that uh, came out uh, in a lot of detail uh, because of the January 6th uh, investigation of her role in uh, in, uh, in attacking the election and, and trying to undermine it uh, up to the day of the uh, uh, capital insurrection. Yeah. And, and since the ProPublica story came out, there have been other reports uh, in the Washington Post that found that Thomas reported that his family had earned rental income from a Nebraska real estate firm that has been closed since 2006. Um, and, and he also you know, continued to disclose between fifty dollars and $100,000 in income from that firm. What do you I mean, is that I don't know that you, know, you you were mentioning Professor Gummings like uh, things that he did not disclose and income that he did not disclose. This is something he disclosed. That he wasn't I mean? What is that? What do you make of that? We I guess it's just really a black box. I mean, this is a problem um, because it's at the discretion of the justices. I, I mean, I think Emily Emily's right to begin with that these uh, uh, financial uh, dealings, the gifts, uh, the uh, income generated from transactions with Harlan Crow, who bought. Uh, his his uh, his mother's home. All of these things seem to clearly fall within the disclosure requirements. I mean, the, the problem is that uh, Justice Thomas says that he either was instructed, he wasn't uh, required to disclose some of these things, or maybe they were in, inadvertent errors. But the pattern doesn't look good because you're correct that he seems to be uh, willing to disclose things that he shouldn't be disclosing, like income from a business that um, Jenny's sister uh, apparently had that went defunct in, in 2006, but he still claims income from that. And then he fails to disclose really important things like lavish trips to Indonesia uh, and and stays on Harlan Crow's yacht in addition to income from his wife that is quite substantial in amount um, that just raises significant questions about whether or not we can really trust uh, the explanations he's giving for his actions. And Emily, what do you make of that uh, income he's disclosing that uh, from a from a shuttered organization? Uh, is that just sloppy? Is it? Does he need a new bookkeeper? I mean, wh- what 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 is that? I mean, it's really hard to tell, and that in itself is a problem, right? I mean, even if we don't know for sure that this was deliberately um, kept a secret, it looks that way. And the whole issue with um, judicial ethics has to do with appearances, right? We don't hold judges to a standard of, aha, we need smoking gun proof that you're corrupt. 
fact that you threw a case because someone paid you off. What we care about with judges is the appearance of neutrality and impartiality. They're really supposed to be just unimpeachable in this regard um, above these kinds of questions that we are legitimately asking right now. And, and that is really what Justice Thomas has sacrificed here. Yeah, well, in fact, they are impeachable, and we can talk about that in a moment. But let's go to the <laughs> phones now. And Pam in San Anselmo, you're up first. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. I I just think that, you know, I was afraid of Justice Thomas when Anita Hill showed us who he was. And now, almost 30 years later, his corruption is showing, you know, fully. And it's not just him. It's the whole MAGA playbook for this, you know, plausible deniability crap. These are not stupid people. He knew exactly what he's doing. And, you know, what you were just saying about how judges are supposed to have the appearance. It's not about needing direct proof. It's, it used to be that that not only judges, but top politicians. I'm not sure what happened to Pam there, but uh, we get the gist. Thanks for the call. And Emily Bezalon, um, you know, how is it that this uh, that the, the Supreme Court has been exempted from these ethics guidelines that apply to every other level of uh, of the judiciary? Yes. How is it? It's such a good question. They have exempted themselves. And because they are at the top of one of the branches of government, they have gotten away with exempting themselves. There is even a question about whether the Ethics in Government Act um, applies to the justices. At one point, Chief Justice Roberts said, well, well, let's assume for the purposes of this question that they do, but I'm not actually conceding that. Um, I think that, you know, Congress could push this by creating rules for the Supreme Court and, and testing this question, and that it's really important for the justices either to voluntarily hold themselves accountable to a set of rules or for the Congress to demand that of the justices. It's just this kind of unaccountability creates problems, and that's what we're seeing here. Yeah, and in fact, uh, shortly we'll be talking with Alex Padilla, California Senator Alex Padilla, who has some legislation to address some of these things. Uh, let's go back to the phones again. The number to call, 866 if you'd like to weigh in on this. And let's go now to San Francisco. And David, you're next. Welcome. Hi. Yes. Um, so, so I work for a multinational company of 60,000 people. And each year we are manda- mandated to take training, mandatory training for ethical behavior. And if any employee were to do a fraction of what Justice Thomas has done, we will be immediately fired. Uh, no questions. We, 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 we just be kicked out the door. So in my mind, the perception here is, is, is obvious. It's, it's really black and white. If the Supreme Court doesn't take action and hold itself accountable to this, then it really begs the question, how far is this rot in, in the Supreme Court? Hmm. Does it extend to other justices as well? Yeah. And, and the, yeah, so, so it's, it's really black and white in my video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Professor Cummings, what are your thoughts? Uh, we I, I, we alluded to, or I alluded to, Im- impeachment. I mean, that is an option, and, and now and then, judges, not Supreme Court judges, but justices, but others down down the chain have been impeached. It's rare, though. I mean, what would it take? Uh, you know, what would it take? And would you say this is this qualifies for consideration? I mean, this is a fundamental 
question, and it's one that's being hotly debated. Um, you know, the, the standard for impeachment for justices is that they hold their office for good behavior. Um, and it, it's an open question about what that means and how it would be applied in particular cases. I mean, there have been uh, very few cases um, in the past where justices were either pushed out or impeached. There's one very early case of impeachment. Um, the case of push out was Abe Fortas, um, and he was pushed out essentially because he was, while he was a justice on the Supreme Court, he was advising the president and giving president detailed information about Supreme Court uh, deliberations, which obviously um, is not okay. Um, I think this is a case where it, the increasing evidence of Thomas's improper conduct and the pall he's casting over the court um, does uh, and the and the fact that um, he seems unwilling to uh, correct course and be transparent about his dealings, I think does at least create a foundation for making an argument that he has failed in, in acting in good behavior in a way that would permit uh, impeachment proceedings to proceed. Yeah, and Emily Bazelon, of course, that would have to begin uh, in the House, which is controlled by Republicans, and there's no indication they would have any appetite for that. Uh, but even if it were, let's say the Democrats were still in charge, I mean, would that not sort of throw gasoline on the fire of, you know, partisanship at the court and, 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 the, and the court's reputation? Yes, it would throw gasoline on the fire. And there's something just sad about that, that this issue, which should be nonpartisan, right? It should be a question separate from partisan politics, whether Justice Thomas has behaved appropriately here. But it it could not be separated from politics. And that's partly because our justices have so much power for such a long time. Um, we are really the only major or a constitutional democracy that has life tenure for the federal judiciary. And that raises the stakes just enormously, as we all know, from the very political um, hot tenor of judicial confirmation hearings in the last decades. Yeah. We're talking about ethics at the U.S. Supreme Court with Emily Bazelon. She's a staff writer with The New York Times Magazine, also uh, teaches at uh, Yale Law School, co-host of Slate's Political Gab Fest. And Scott Cummings, he's a professor of legal ethics at the UCLA School of Law. Join us if you'd like. It's 866-733-6786. And we're going to go now to Walnut Creek. And Gary, you're next. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, I am most disappointed in the lack of some kind of proactive behavior on the part of the court as a whole. I don't know if the chief justice has any role in this, but it seems to me that given their careers and their training, they would be thinking about putting together their own ethics, uh, code of ethics. And I'm wondering if anybody's ever heard a glimmer of that process. Yeah, well, and Emily Bazelon, of course, you know, for years, it's been reported that Chief Justice Roberts seems to care deeply about the reputation of the court. I mean, is this a crisis for him? It would certainly seem to be. But what is he doing about it? I mean, in in an annual report that he gave about more than a decade ago, he basically confirmed that, hey, we can do we can we got this, you know, we can handle this ourselves, we can judge ourselves. Right. I mean, I have zero inside information. It's very hard to imagine that Chief Justice Roberts is not deeply upset about all of this for all the reasons we've been talking about. His name is on the court. Um, This is besmirching the court. 
And at the same time, it's really not clear what power he has to do something about it. He could try to get the other justices to sign on to some kind of binding ethics accountability, right? I mean, there are various mechanisms that have been um, proposed over the years, and he could try to get the whole court behind him to adopt something. I think that would be a very healthy change. But getting that kind of agreement across political lines at a very delicate moment for Justice Thomas could actually be harder, right? Because they would be so clearly calling out one of their colleagues. Yeah. Scott Cummings, anything you'd want to add to that? I think that's correct. I mean, I I also don't have inside information, but do do believe, and there's been reporting that um, there's been uh, a, a sort of a, a voluntary adoption of an ethics code in the works for some time now. I do suspect that it's very hard to get everyone on board with what that would look like. But uh, as Emily indicated, it's essential that uh, that the court do so for uh, its reputation and for uh, criticism like this to stop. There have been a couple of other legislative bills that have been proposed uh, over and over again, and they would essentially require the court to adopt its own code. Uh, one would actually work through the existing system of the Judicial Council to draft rules that would then become binding on the court. Right now, the Judicial Council has rules that uh, that cover every other federal judge, but not the Supreme Court just, justices. So that's one route. Um, and then there's a recent uh, act that's been proposed that would essentially just ask the court to write its own rules and cover themselves, but it would put the congressional imprimatur on that and push that forward in a way that I think could be very helpful. Emily Bezlon, let's say that uh, Justice Thomas had reported all these gifts. Um, Would that have been enough? I don't think so. And, you know, there's a telling set of details here, which is that in the late 90s and early 2000s, um, Thomas was reporting some gifts from Harlan Crow. There was some press coverage that was quite critical of him. And then the disclosures end. And so, right, there's this problem here for him, which is when you tell people the, you know, incredibly luxurious trips you're taking and these pricey gifts and these real estate deals, they're going to think there's a problem there. Um, And so there's a reason that he was hiding these Mm. gifts in terms of the reputational cost to him. Yeah. I'm Scott Schaefer here this hour for Alexis Madrigal. We're going to be right back after a short break, continue our conversation about ethics in the Supreme Court. And we're going to be joined by Senator Alex Padilla, who has a bill to bring more transparency and accountability to the Supreme Court. If you'd like to join us, the number to call is 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Or you can reach us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, in for Alexis Madrigal. We're going to continue our conversation about Justice Clarence Thomas and the lack of ethical guidelines at the U.S. Supreme Court, ProPublica's extraordinary investigation into Thomas's lack of reporting lavish gifts from a conservative billionaire, putting all of this into sharper focus. And if you'd like to join us, it's 866-733-6786. We're talking with Scott Cummings, professor of legal ethics at UCLA's School of Law, and Emily Bazelon, staff writer with the New York Times Magazine. Let's go next down to Burlingame. Philip, welcome. Hi, great, um, great show. You know, really, everybody's talking about ethics, but that's not really what we're talking about. We're really talking about corruption. Um, corruption is corrupt or dishonest uh, proceedings and um, bribery. So, for example, giving money. Um, to somebody, you know, so Ho on the circuit court, who was appointed by Trump, said because there is no direct matter before the court, you know, he doesn't see any need for it, you know. So I don't think anybody's going to do anything. I think it's fantasy to think anybody on the Republican side is going to do anything voluntary to deal with this because there have been corruption and ethics problems throughout the current GOP. It's, it's changed radically since Trump. So the question here is hard politics, you know. Really, what can be done about this? If, you know, not a discretionary kind of, you know, bilateral kind of thing, but, you know, what power is there to deal with this corruption, which continues to, to pervade the yeah. entire justice system? Well, and Emily Bazelon, this issue of ethics and term limits um, really played, you know, a role or some tried to make it play a role in the 2020 election. Um, we did see in the midterms uh, questions about uh, abortion coming into play for a lot of voters. I mean, do you see, to what extent do you see voters, you know, caring enough about this to to really elevate it on the list of concerns they have when they when they vote? Right. It's a great question. I mean, elections are obviously our most important tool for promoting democracy and even for impacting the court, right? Because in the end, the politicians, our elected officials are making the judicial appointments. At the same time, elections are a blunt tool because people vote based on lots of different considerations. Um, I think we had some indication in 2022 and elections this year that uh, people are thinking about abortion in some states. Whether that means in 2024, they are going to really, you know, vote based on their feelings about the Supreme Court when the person who has the most effect is the president, you know, that's, we'll see. There are lots of reasons that factor into people's presidential votes. It is true that if you are discontent right now with the Supreme Court, then it is the conservative majority that um, is troubling to you. And at the same time, if you like what the court is doing, you would want to continue Republican president and Republican Senate in order to confirm more conservative nominees. I mean, we've really seen just a total polarization ideologically and in terms of um, partisan affiliation. Philip, thanks very much for that. And it does seem, Emily, that, uh, I mean, the court... uh, 
you know, there have always been Republican and Democratic presidents making these appointments. But, uh, you know, some people say it all began with Robert Bork. Uh, but uh, but obviously uh, there is a long history now of uh, politicization of the court. And I want to bring in uh, Senator Alex Padilla, who uh, has some legislation that he's offering up with some other members of the Judiciary Committee. Senator Padilla, thank you for joining us. And if you would tell us what your legislation is proposing. Good morning. Good morning. And thank you for having me. And uh, yes, just jumping right into it. Uh, in response to the most recent reports. It's not the first time we hear of uh, potential, we'll leave it at that for now, ethical violations um, at the Supreme Court level. Join my colleagues in introducing legislation that would create a much needed process for investigating reported misconduct at the Supreme Court and uh, strengthen the recusal standard for judges and disclosure rules, uh, those sorts of things. And here's the bottom line. The highest court in the land should not have the lowest ethical standards, the lowest ethical uh, expectation uh, or responsibility. They should be setting the bar, not lowering mm-hmm. the bar. How that's is, what we're trying to do with uh, this legislation. And how is your legislation different from what the House introduced in 2020, which I think was called the 21st Century Court Act? Right. No, look, it's, it's an evolution. Uh, and it's uh, the conversation about bringing about better uh, ethics laws, enforceable ethics laws at the Supreme Court uh, is not a new conversation. It's been going on for years. Uh, but the reports that we've heard about Justice Thomas's conduct uh, has certainly been amongst the most egregious and uh, uh, needs to be responded to. Yeah. What power or authority does Congress have over the court? I mean, somebody you could be, you know, Congress could be sued. I mean, this happens all the time uh, when Congress passes laws lately. Right. Well, if we go back to the uh, founding of our nation in the Constitution, there's an intentional three branches of government, balance of power, checks and balances to be more precise. Uh, And there is precedent. Congress has acted in the past to require financial disclosures, conflict of interest uh, requirements uh, for the uh, judiciary. Uh, And so uh, I think it's firm legal constitutional ground to consider uh, these new requirements. Again, the highest court in the land should not have the lowest ethical standards. Based on what we've heard and what you know, do you think Justice Thomas should resign? Uh, Look, it's... it's, uh, Uh, The reporting, uh, which I believe is uh, pretty damning, but uh, what I believe is the most important next step is for there to be an investigation. Uh, Several of uh, members of the Senate, including myself, have called on Chief Justice Roberts uh, to begin uh, a Supreme Court internal review. But at the same time, this is not mutually exclusive. Uh, I am encouraged by uh, Senator Durbin, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, and his announcement that there will be, sooner rather than later, a, uh, a hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee to uh, uh, explore the reports and, uh, and, and based on the facts presented, uh, pursue uh, uh, whatever we deem is appropriate at that point. Yeah. You mentioned the Judiciary Committee, which you are a member of. And, uh, you know, of course, it's been widely reported that it's been unable to move judicial nominees to the floor with Senator Feinstein absent. Republicans seem unwilling to help in that regard. Other than getting Senator Feinstein back and voting on the committee, how can Democrats get president's judges to the floor for a vote or even do what you're saying here with regard to Justice Thomas and maybe asking somebody from the court to come testify? Right. Uh, Look, I I appreciate the question. Uh, In the short term, there's still a lot of work that the Senate Judiciary Committee can and is doing. 
Uh, it's a two-step process for judicial nominees to advance to the full Senate for a vote. The first step is to have a hearing, and those have been scheduled, and those uh, continue. Uh, a hearing about Justice Thomas's reported uh, activities and ethical violations uh, can and will uh, be scheduled and, and be conducted. And I do believe Senator Feinstein, it's just a matter of time before she returns. Yeah. Some, as you know, uh, in California, specifically Congressman Rokana calling on her to step down. Senator Klobuchar seems to be running out of patience. What do you make of calls like that? Yeah, it's, uh, I may not agree with it. I certainly understand it. Uh, it's not the first time that a senator, member of the Senate, has been uh, absent for an extended period of time due to illness. And so uh, we, you know, the Senate has handled it before. It just hasn't happened where uh, it's at a 50-50 or 51-49, such a thin majority. And so it has had an impact. But the work continues. Uh, I do believe it's just a matter of time before Senator Feinstein returns to the Senate uh, and we'll have uh, marathon sessions to catch up on votes uh, and do the business, not just of the federal judiciary, uh, not just of the Senate, but uh, uh, of the country in short order. Back to your bill. I know we have to let you go. You have uh, just about a minute left. It looks like so far there are no Republican co-sponsors for this ethics bill you're proposing. Have you talked with any of your colleagues on the Judiciary Committee or elsewhere? I mean, is there any interest, any concern they're voicing about this ProPublica report? Look, we're, we're going to keep trying. Uh, it speaks to the level of disappointment on how Republicans have handled this issue. Uh, all you have to do is ask yourself, uh, if this was reported conduct by a Supreme Court justice that had been nominated by a Democratic president, how do Republicans be responding? Uh, I think the hypocrisy is loud and clear. And have you had any conversations? Is anybody, you know, a lot of times with issues, uh, whether it's gun control or abortion, you know, there'll be these hallway or cloakroom conversations where, you know, one member will say, well, you know, I really agree with you, but I can't say it because of X, Y, Z. I mean, are you getting any indication that there is concern about this from people like, say, Mitt Romney even? Uh, of course. Look, there's, of course, been those efforts and, uh, you know, just to, to speak to the hypocrisy and, and the challenge of it all. Uh, even uh, a district court judges, Republicans uh, have, you know, not overwhelmingly, but more than occasionally uh, supported President Biden's nominees to district courts across the country. So the confirmation of federal judges can continue for Republicans who had been willing to uh, reach across the aisle uh, in the past this session, the prior session, were to continue to do so. But uh, they, they view uh, a political opportunity uh, and uh, they're trying to exploit it. And uh, it's a shame. Senator Alex Padilla, thank you so much for joining us. All right, thank you. Have a good day. You bet. Um, let me just before we go to the calls, uh, let me just ask uh, either one of you for a reaction to what you heard there about the bill or anything else. Emily Bazelon. You know, I think that um, this is inevitably it's just going to be hard to get bipartisan support for a bill like this, as Senator Padilla knows. And that doesn't mean it's not worth trying to do. But um, the idea of regulating, of having bipartisan agreement to regulate Supreme Court justices, given their incredibly uh, important role right now and the politics of abortion, we have a decision pending today, and the way in which all of this interacts with our partisan politics and our elections. It's just hard to imagine Congress getting its act together. Yeah. All right. Let's go back to the phones now. We're going to go down to Florida, St. Pete's, and Peter, welcome. Hey. 
You know, you know. The, I, I was thinking just what's the basic thing we learn when we're, when we're kids about court procedures? Being sworn in. Do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? What I would say to Clarence Thomas is, were you telling the truth and the whole truth? Well, I said I was going on vacation. But what's the whole truth? Well, I said I was going to Tahiti. But who was paying for it? Let's have the whole truth. I mean, it's the premise of justice. He was in violation. You know, he, he, right? I mean, court procedure, right? Mm. By, by the rules of the court. Yeah. Well, and, and Scott Cummings, I, I know you're a legal uh, ethics guy, not uh, so much confirmation hearings expert, but these nominees have become very well briefed on how to get through the process without really answering a lot of questions. And we see from the answers they give and then how they behave once they get there that there's, they don't match up. I think that's right. Um, I mean, one of the arguments in favor of a code is that it would be a moment, it would allow for in these confirmation hearings, uh, questions to be asked about ethics and about uh, the commitment of nominees to adhering to ethical rules once they ascend to the court. And it is true that uh, candidates are able to wiggle around these things once they're there, but I do think it would sh shine a spotlight and create more accountability than we have now in the system. Yeah. The other thing, the other thing I would add, oh, sorry. I no, no, go ahead, add, yeah. Add one other thing, which is just that um, I agree with Emily that the politics of passing one of these Supreme Court ethics acts does not look good right now. But I would just emphasize that if one of these acts were in place and if the code of conduct applied to the justices, it would not just require Thomas to disclose, but it would actually ban him from accepting the gifts. So it goes to the corruption point. This would actually just not be allowed anymore. And that would be a good thing. Yeah. Peter, thanks very much for your comments. Emily, you uh, wrote very recently about the power of courts and questions about that around the world. Israel, of course, has had a bit of a political crisis as Netanyahu and his coalition, the most conservative parts of it, trying to rein in and take away power from the Israeli Supreme Court. How do you see this conversation fitting into that larger narrative that you wrote about? Well, I think that it's important to realize that the United States has a form of power for our Supreme Court that is very unusual, right? So democracies put together their constitutions, their separation of power, their whole political and governance structure in a variety of ways. And it's hard to compare them. But when you look at the United States, you see a couple features of our judicial branch that other democracies have not adopted. One of them is life tenure, which just uh, gives the particular people on the court enormous power for a long time. And it means that the rotation of who serves on the court is slow and not necessarily responsive to people's voting preferences. And also the timing is random. And then another feature of our constitution that's distinct is our constitution is very hard to amend. And so that means that what the justices say about the constitution basically becomes cemented into American law. And if it's out of sync with voters' preferences, it's very hard for them to address that. Yeah. And so we just have a kind of judicial supremacy here that many other democracies don't have. Yeah. 
We've got a lot of listener comments. Chris writes, as a government servant, I would lose my job if I didn't disclose a box of candy given during the holidays, regardless of party. I think that's maybe not quite right, depending on the value. Uh, But regardless of party, all elected or appointed public servants are accountable. We citizens should expect no less. And Tracy writes, the real problem is not disclosure, but the fact that justices almost never recuse themselves when they are biased or have the appearance of being biased. And what would you say to that point, uh, Scott Cummings? Because clearly, I mean, it's very rare that a justice will recuse themselves. Um, and, you know, Emily, I think you alluded to a case involving White House records. Clarence Thomas uh, was the only vote in support of suppressing that. His wife was in the records. I mean, how much clearer does it have to be if it's uh, if it's a conflict? Scott I, I Cummings, think yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that's important and it kind of ties back a little bit to uh, what Senator Padilla was talking about is that the other uh, way in which the Congress exercises some congressional authority over the judiciary is through the federal recusal statute, which specifically applies to the justices um, uh, and maybe open questions about whether or not if it were challenged, it would be upheld. But it does apply to the justices and it does require uh, recusal under specified circumstances, which include when a justice's impartiality might be questioned. It, it includes situations, uh, as indicated with respect to the uh, uh, case that went up and uh, Thomas's, Thomas dissented from, when a justice's spouse has an interest that could be substantially affected by the outcome of a particular case. Um, so that statute is an important tool. The problem, as you indicate, is one of enforcement and the mechanisms that the court has now do not actually require enforcement. And so justices are just able to sort of decide whether they're going to follow it or not. And that's a big problem. The big picture here really is is a lack of transparency. And Emily, uh, you know, the courts have famously not allowed cameras uh, to be used. Uh, this morning, interestingly, there was an audio, live audio feed. Uh, there was a lot of expectation that the justices might make a decision on the Mifepristone uh, accessibility question and the, F- the FDA approval of that abortion drug. What is is cameras in the courtroom sort of a metaphor for all of this in some way, do you think? Just this we can't see what's going on. Yes, that's a really good point. Um, The lack of cameras certainly doesn't make the court more accessible. And, you know, I think the court law generally can seem very dense and alienating to people. And when the court doesn't take these kind of basic steps to allow people to hear the voices of the justices, to see their faces, to really understand what's going on, in the end, it just makes the law seem more remote and harder for people to understand and really identify with. I think the justices over the years have been reluctant to have cameras because they don't want to be recognizable when they go out on the street. But there's a real cost to the democracy. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks to all of our guests, Emily Bazelon, Scott Cummings, uh, Josh Kaplan from ProPublica earlier, and Senator Alex Padilla. I'm Scott Schaefer in for Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum with Mina Kim. Thanks for listening.
funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.